by some estimates, you have as many as you know, 50, you know, 55, 57 million folks who don't have access to workplace savings plans like 401k plans or um, Simpson symbols or other saving um, vehicles. And there's always a, you know, a, um, a concern in the Congress about that and, and how it is we can encourage you know, more employers to offer these plans. DC Pension Geeks brings you exclusive conversations with top retirement policymakers and regulators in and around Washington, DC, hosted by Brian Graff, an attorney, accountant, former Capitol Hill staffer, and CEO of the American Retirement Association. If you're looking for an insider's view of all the twists and turns that Washington takes on the road to ensuring a secure retirement for millions of Americans, you're in the right place. Welcome to DC Pension Geeks. Hello, everybody. This is uh, Brian Graff for another uh, ser- another of the series of the DC Pension Geeks podcast. And we've got a really special Pension Geek today with us. His name is Drew Crouch. Uh, who is with the Senate Finance Committee. And, and I, I like to start these, Drew, by you know, giving people a little bit of background about you. So one, tell us uh, kind of what, what your role is with the Senate Finance Committee and kind of what you do and you know, how did you land here? I mean, it's kind of a cool job. And I've told people my favorite job ever was working for the Congress at one point in my career. And, and you know, how did you end up in this uh, exciting position? Well, gosh, thank you, Brian. Um, you know, there's a lot there to unpack. And I just want to start off by saying first, I really appreciate the opportunity, um, you know, for you to invite me on to the Pension Geeks um, podcast. Um, and before I start, I, I just have to say, um, you know, the remarks that I that I, um, I share with you today are my own and not to be attributed to um, any other member, you know, any member of the Senate Finance Committee or any member of Congress. So, um, so stepping back, you know, you know, how did I, how did I get here to this podcast today? Um, you know, you know, it's interesting. Um, you know, after law school, I decided to attend a, a graduate tax program, um, and as part of my studies there, I um, took um, several classes that um, that are related to employee benefits um, taxation, and um, and then interviewing with employers. You know, out of that program, I found that at the time. Um, you know, there were lots of, of law firms that were looking for ERISA tax associates um, to join their practices. And so that was what I was hired to do about 25 years ago. And so I no one up, else wanted to do it. Yeah, no, well, I don't know about that. <laughs> I, I was one of the people who, who was interested in doing it. And I was lucky to get hired. And so I ended up joining a, a very large Washington, D.C. law firm. And that's all I did, um, you know, you know, at the law firm was, was practice employee benefits law. And, and specifically Title II tax work. So, um, and then from there, I um, I was hired by the um, Office of IRS Chief Counsel to um, to write pension regulations, and I did that for a number of years. And um, and you know after I had done that for a while, I um, you know some um, some folks reached out to me about joining a congressional committee on the Hill, and I thought um, you know you know interview with the folks they all seem very nice, and I got to tell you um, you know you know Capitol Hill wasn't on my radar. But I remember thinking at the time that, you know, I wasn't sure, you know, when this type of opportunity would ever um, come up again. So I thought, why not? Let's do it. And, um, and that was, I guess, gosh, about 15 years ago. <laughs> and so by this did point. You, did you, so did you succeed Judy Miller when she left? You, is that, is that, am I getting that actually, right? Judy Miller, um, I don't think was at the Joint Committee on Taxation. I was no, actually no. succeeding um, Trisha McDermott. Yeah, Trisha McDermott. And, um, and and folks, some benefit folks may have heard of her, but she was a longtime IRS chief counsel employee. And then she was in the Joint Committee of Taxation. Gosh, for I want to say like a decade, decade and a half. Yeah, no, for a very long time. Yeah. 
And so anyway, you know, fast forward from there, I, I've been at um, several, you know, th- you know, three congressional committees where my focus has always been on employee benefits. And I also did a stint at the, um, at the Treasury Department um, working on um, underfunded multi-employer pension plans. People, so, you know, people on the outside sort of, you know, I think they're surprised that there is, sometimes they think there's no expertise mm-hmm. uh, with, you know, staff on the Hill. Um, you know, obviously you have a, tremendous background technically um, in employee benefits, but, you know, it's still, you know, even when I, when I was there, when frankly, everyone, there tends to be like maybe one or two people that are more technically steeped in, in employee benefits. And is it a challenge sometimes working with other staff because, you know, they just, they don't have the background that you have. And, and this is complicated stuff when they're making proposals. Oh, sure. Um, actually, you know, what I found at, um, you know, in my time on Capitol Hill is that, um, you, know, you know, staffers, you know, you know, for the most part, are actually much more steeped in, in sort of the technical details than, than sort of folks uh, might be aware of. Um, we do tend to cover um, sort of large, large portfolios. And as part of that, um, I think it's always important for, for any lawyer or professional to sort of know what you don't know. And I've really found that on the Hill, you know, most folks have a very healthy respect for that. Um, and the other thing is that we have, um, a, you know, a wide array of um, impartial um, professionals that, um, that can be pulled on to, um, you, know, you know, in order to focus your knowledge a little deeper and to sort of handle those, those really technical nitty gritty questions. And so an example of that would be the Joint Community Taxation, which functions as sort of the in-house confidential tax um, law office for um, all the offices in Congress and the committees of jurisdiction. So people obviously, you know, watch cable news, some, you know, unfortunately for them. Um, And clearly there is a lack of part, you know, bipartisanship that is really the environment that exists today is much more, well, I mean, it's always been partisan. People say sometimes it's more partisan now than ever. I I think that's, I think it's more publicly partisan now than ever, Um, just because of social media, because of cable news. But somehow retirement has seemed to kind of stay out of the fray. It's sort of, you know, to me, it's remarkable and it's wonderful and and I'm grateful for it. you know, when we d- you had your hearing and uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to testify at that hearing uh, in advance of Secure 2.0, it, it was amazing, you know, kind of the kumbaya moments and experiences that the members on both sides of the dais were having. Um, what's, why do you think that's the case? Why, what makes retirement policy so special? I mean, juxtaposed against like Social Security, right? Where or Medicare, where, you know, there's the typical more partisanship going on. What is it that makes retirement policy unique that members sort of, oh, that's the thing that we're going to treat as bipartisan? Yeah, it's a great question. And I um, I wish I, I knew the source of the magic or, or just why exactly it is that, that retirement policy tends to be bipartisan. I, I think the one thing I'll say, you know, there's an important um, there's an important catalyst, if you will, about, about, about why that happens. And it really has to do with um, the members of Congress. Keep in mind, I'm just staff. Um, so my job at the, um, the, the Senate Finance Committee is to advise um, Chairman Wyden 
and then the other um, Democrats on the committee, um, as well as uh, other Democrats in, in the U.S. Senate on um, tax aspects of retirement policy. But it's really the members of, of Congress that, um, that set the policy. Staff are there to, um, to help execute um, what it is that the members um, of Congress are interested in. And I will say that in retirement policy, there have always been a number of um, both Democrats and Republicans who are highly engaged um, on this issue. And that really tends to set the tone. And you think they are the ones kind of pushing to keep this bipartisan? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think you see that reflected in, in recent um, in recent retirement um, legislation, as, as well as prior iterations of the legislation that made it across the finish This has been going on for 30 years now. I mean, oh, yeah. since 96, frankly. I mean, it's, it is kind of a m- remarkable run. Do you think, you know, now that Rob Portman has retired, um, obviously Ben Cardin is still around, um, do you think that will be able to be maintained? Or do you think things might get a little bit more partisan? No, I actually do expect that there will be um, one or more Republicans who um, who will voice in, uh, you know, and show leadership and in retirement policy um, after the retirement of Senator Portman. Um, as to who that is, I, I don't have a crystal ball. We'll have to see. Oh, how what, what's your, what, any guesses? Who, who's no. sort of indicate? No, not, you're not willing no. to go guess? All right. <laughs> no, um, I don't want to put any office on the spot. <laughs> um. So every bill that, you know, when I was on the hills, uh, since I was a lobbyist, I mean, I've worked on a few retirement bills like you have, um, there's always boo-boos. Um, that's a technical term. And, um, and speaking of technical, the, 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 more, the, more appro- the more, I guess, correct way of describing it is called technical correction. Um, these are things... Well, I guess what what's what's your definition of what a technical correction is, and what's the process for making that determination? Sure, I mean a technical correction, um, you know, I, I guess it's more art than science, but but the, the key concept here is that um, the intent of of the U.S. Congress is it different um, or is it odds with what the actual technical language um, that was actually enacted. And sort of the, the clearest cut technical is, is something, for example, a clerical um, misreference or a cross-reference that isn't quite right. Um, but there could be other other tech types of technicals too. And sort of the key thing to understanding technical corrections is there's, there's a process for sort of identifying and resolving them. And that's where the um, the four or sometimes even eight committees uh, or staffs of, of jurisdiction will get together, <clears throat> sort of review issues that um, the practitioners and, and stakeholders um, and the retirement community identify and then um, make a decision, a consensus decision. Um, so all the Republican Democratic staffs of the committees of jurisdiction um, over, you know, whether something is um, indeed a mistake. And, um, and typically the um, technical correction process um, requires um, a, um, a legislative fix. And typically those, um, those, those legislative fixes have been bipartisan in nature. So that when there is agreement um, from, you know, from all the committees of jurisdiction, their staffs, um, then technical, um, you know, a technical correction legislation will be drafted, and then that will be added to, um, at some point to must-pass legislation, so become law. So, do you um, obviously the there's a big question around Roth, right? Um, any insight as to whether that's going to require legislative change or not? Yeah, we don't know yet. Um, the Secure Two Point legislation passed. In December, and we'll start working with the Treasury Department and IRS to identify 
um, you know, any technical, you know, technical issues that have arisen. So that certainly is one that we're looking at. But as to the exact outcome, whether a legislative fix is necessary, whether it can be handled by regulations, and indeed sort of what, what the technical error might be, these are things that um, the staffs are still working through. So I don't want to put the, um, the cart before the horse, um, but this is something that, um, you know, we are taking a hard look at. And I do ask, you know, you know, you know as the folks who listen to this podcast, if they see things um, in the Secure 2.0 legislation that they, um, you know, don't think uh, represented intent, it's always helpful to, to sort of hear from stakeholders and practitioners about um, about what it is they think. Um, and so, you know, we've had a number of, of um, let's say about a, like a, half, a dozen and a half um, of sort of issues like that. And we are taking a hard look. Um, and obviously we've given you, given you our list um, and very much appreciate your willingness to, to take a look at that. You mentioned that, you know, technical corrections typically are put on um, so-called must-pass legislation. Um, what would you envision, assuming there's some things that have to get fixed legislatively, is there something that you think could be characterized as must pass this year? Oh, sure. I mean, just one example would be um, the appropriations legislation um, to fund the federal government. Um, so the federal government has to fund it annually, and it generally runs off of the federal fiscal year, which starts October 1st. And so we have um, funding in place. Um, an appropriations bill was actually passed in December, which has allowed the Secure 2.0 legislation across the finish line. It had been attached itself to an appropriations bill to fund the rest of federal fiscal year uh, 2023. And so, um, you know, beginning October 1, we'll have to have appropriations language in place to fund the federal government um, for fiscal year um, 2024. Um, otherwise, there'll be a government shutdown. And so that might be an example of somewhere where you can um, attach must-pass legislation. What um, is Senator Wyden concerned about, speaking of must-pass legislation, is Senator Wyden concerned about the debt limit? I mean, we've it's it, there was a lot of conversation about it a few, like a month or so ago, and then all of a sudden it got quiet because of other things that are going on. Um but I think somewhere June-ish timeframe, right, we're, we're running into a problem. And so what, um, what is Senator Wyden's thinking on this? Because obviously, you know, as stewards of retirement savings, we're worried about the potential impact that a default would have on, you know, devastating effect would have on, on people's retirement savings. Sure. Um, you know, you know, this is something that um, that all the members of Congress are very interested in, including, um, you know, Chairman Wyden. Um, and, it, it, you know, it, it's something that, um, you know, you know, folks are working on. It's not actually something that's in, in my particular portfolio. Um, you know, I handle retirement policy and, and not, um, you know, not sort of broader economic um, issues for the committee. But it is certainly something that folks are very aware of. And um, you are right. The, the clock is ticking. Um, it's something that Congress needs to resolve sooner. Rather yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think there's an awareness about the, you know, what the, the pocketbook impacts of mm -hmm. the stuff that they're playing around with here. And I hope uh, it won't be necessary, but it may be necessary for us to impress upon folks. Um, I, I know Chairman Wine gets this, but about what the potential impacts are and the real impacts on people's retirement savings could be really significant. Um, all right. So, You've got, you know, you've accomplished quite a bit as a, as a congratulations. You've done lots of legislation, most recently Secure 1.0, Secure 2.0. What's next? Where do, where do we go from here? What are the things that you think 
are left undone on a, in a, a big picture sense. Sure. Actually, let's let's step back and, and think about the security point of legislation. Um, the amazing thing about that and how it came together in the Finance Committee is it really was driven by the priorities of all the Democrats and Republicans on the committee. And so, um, you know, I, there's a staffer who's my counterpart for the Republican staff. And at the very beginning of the process, um, you know, Senators, um, you know, Chairman Wyden and Ranking Member Crapo, you know, asked that uh, we put together a bipartisan markup that really collected the ideas of, you know, all the members of the committee. And so, um, you know, that markup was held in, um, in June of, of 2023 and excuse me, 2022. <laughs> and, um, and it really, you know, you know, there was a good year, year and a half lead time where um, me and my counterpart went to each of the um, Democrat and Republican offices um, of the finance committee and said, hey, you know, we're going to be working towards a markup. Um, you know, what are your ideas? What would you like to see, you know, you know, offered at that, at that markup? And um, we spent a year, year and a half um, weeding through all the ideas, helping folks from technical aspects to make sure it worked right, um, you know, gauging member interest. And, and really what you saw in that, that markup um, was the, um, you, know, you know, the work product of, of all those different offices. And so looking to the future, um, you know, I think we'll need a little bit of time to sort of regroup, but, um, but there's always um, retirement proposals um, to sort of refine and perfect um, the current system that we have. And so I would expect that in this Congress and the next, folks will be drilling back down, um, talking to st stakeholders about um, areas um, and, and ways in which current retirement laws don't don't either produce good outcomes or, or could be tweaked um, to make things work a little better. And um, we'll just have to see. I mean, um, Congress is the marketplace of ideas, and um, we'll have to see sort of what it is that um, individual member offices um, bring forward. What about like auto enrollment? Do you think that there's interest in, you know, there's a requirement for new plans that's in Secure 2.0? Um, doesn't really go into effect until 2025, but practically, I think a lot of a lot of folks are talking about just implementing it right away. Um, what about for existing plans? Is that an area that I think is that would be something you think will be looked at, given the data that shows how powerful automatic enrollment is? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's something that folks will have an interest in. I mean, I think it's premature to say whether something like that could cross the finish line on a um, you know on a bipartisan basis. Um, but you know, the interesting thing about um, you know, you know, that proposal that there actually, you know, is legislation, you know, apart from what we pa um, passed in Secure 2.0 um, that proposes to, um, to implement, um, you know, you know, auto enrollment, um, you know, type plans. Um, and, you know, for example, like um, Senator Whitehouse and, and um, Ranking Member Neal, um, you know, have a proposal that would, that would create sort of a national um, auto air program. Right. So... And that we'll have to see what the appetite is for um, for that, that that sort of legislation. Well, there's apparently some Republicans who think mandates are okay in some respects. So you know, you never you never know. Um, or requirement, uh, the word mandate sometimes is not favored. But um, what about um, the 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 large? There was a, a bunch of proposals that the chairman was in favor of as part of Build Back Better around you know. Roth and, you know, what he felt were kind of abusive situations. Are they going to be revisited at some point? Yeah. I mean, Senator White does have an interest in, um, 
in uh, you know news reports that um, that have come out about um, folks, some folks having extremely large IRAs. Um, you know, in some cases, um, tens of millions of dollars, or even hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, in, so in I think some some in the billions. Yeah, perhaps, perhaps. Um, and you know, I think we step back and, and think about you know why it is that we have favorable tax rules for um, for retirement. It's to encourage folks to save. And I think the underlying point um, for these very large um, account balances is whether there really needs to be a, um, a taxpayer provided subsidy. Um, to encourage folks to save at that type of level. Um, when you have accounts that, um, that are that large, it really starts to look like intergenerational wealth planning as opposed to um, an incentive to save for, um, for um, retirement um, income. Do, um, you know, I think you've said in other remarks that there is some concern about um, inequity in the way those incentives are distributed. Can you talk a little bit about what you think might be looked at in the you know next iteration of retirement legislation? Sure. There is a concern. Um, you, know, you know, there's data out there. Um, for example, ARP has put together data, um, you know, in the last year that talks about um, folks who don't have access to workplace savings. And so, for example, um, by some estimates, you have as many as you know, 50, you know, 55, 57 million folks who don't have access to workplace savings funds like 401k plans or um, and symbols or other saving um, vehicles. And there's always a, you know, a, um, a concern in the Congress about that and, and how it is we can encourage you know, more employers to offer these plans. And part of it goes to, um, there's a great um, statistic that um, ASPA and, and now ERA um, has put forward on um, the power of, of workplace savings um, plans on, uh, on folks' ability to save. And, and maybe Ryan, you could talk a little bit about that because it, it's a really interesting contrast um, how you guys dug that up about how. Oh, it's, I mean, it's it's based on uh, work that we did with Ebury, but you know, people who have, I mean, folks on this, everybody listening, have heard me say this so many times. Uh, but you know, people who are covered by a workplace savings program are twelve to fifteen times more likely to save than on their own in an IRA. It's, I mean, workplace savings works. It's and we 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 share the agreement that coverage, the coverage gap is definitely something that needs to get addressed. Now, there is a, a, a relatively new proposal um, that has gotten some bipartisan interest uh, that would address this gap by creating a federal, um, a federally run retirement program for the, you know, intended to cover the uncovered, although we have concerns that if the government's subsidizing them, you know, a more generous match or non-elective contribution that, you know, profit maximizing companies would just decide to shift their employees over to the government program. Um, that proposal kind of juxtaposed against kind of the Neil White House proposal, which is seemingly less onerous um, on its face. It just basically kind of a national mandate for employers above a certain size to have some type of, you know, plan, you know, this, I guess, gets thrown into the mix of the marketplace of ideas. Do you think those big picture ideas are going to be part of the mix? And, you know, what's the likelihood of anything happening anytime soon? Sure. Yeah, actually, I, I do think those ideas and others, um, you know, and I think will be part of the mix, um, you know, and, and I think just the broader thing to think about is, is, 
you know, what ideas are are there out there to meaningfully meaningfully provide benefits to, to folks, you know, the 50 million plus folks who don't have access to workplace, um, you know, savings plans. I, um, you know, as to what idea might make it across the finish line, I, you know, I really couldn't say as I sit here today. Um, but, um, but, you know, it's something that, you know, is on my mind as well as other, you know, retirement policy staffers, you know, on Capitol Hill. So, so really, let me, let me, let me, let me finish with one, this one last question following up what you just said. Do you think that this coverage gap is sustainable politically? In other words, at some point, you know, we keep on whacking at it. At some point, do you think bigger measures might be taken by Congress if, if it's not addressed? Um, I hope so. I mean, you know, I, you know, one thing I found that in retirement policy, the Congress is relentless um, to trying to get better results. And so I think that's what you've seen with these um, these retirement bills that have, have come along. Um, I think take, for example, the Security Bueno Act. I mean, it's a collection of 90 plus you know, different provisions that um, are oftentimes very much in the weeds, um, but they're all really designed to sort of um, to figure it out, you know, how it is that, you know, complex retirement, you know, you know policy rules and regulations can be better to sort of result in, in better outcomes for retirement savers. Um, and I think part of that discussion is is how do we bring um, you know those fifty million plus folks you know in, into the um, you know, the employer um, or um, or workplace savings um, you know retirement system. Um, but as to whether it happens in this Congress or the next Congress, and, and sort of which specific proposal it is um, that folks might coalesce, um, you know, time will tell on that one. Um, that's something where um, you know the individual members Congress. Um, you know, um, really set the agenda for that and, um, and identify what solutions um, it is that, that they're comfortable with um, interacting. Awesome, Drew. Thank you so much for your time. It, you know, it, it, it ultimately comes down to getting more people access, that, that meaningful opportunity to save. And, and it's great to have people like you continuing to work on that incredibly important issue. So thanks for your time and thanks for all you do. No, thank you, Brian. And I'll just add, um, you know, we've really appreciated the suggestions that come from ARA on changes to retirement policy as well as their stakeholders. And so I do ask folks, keep up, keep, keep on coming up with the great ideas and sending oh, them to yes. us. You can <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thanks, and not, all, not all ideas are possible, but, um, but we do want to hear them. So thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for your time. Of course.